You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, and I'm Josh Wise. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by IATP's European Director, Shafali Sharma, to talk about a report that IATP contributed to, which was released on Monday, October 15th. Shafali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. All right, let's start out. What is Clara, and um, what was the purpose of the report that came out on Monday? Yeah, so CLARA is the Climate, Land, Ambition, and Rights Alliance, uh, which is an alliance of civil society groups, people's organizations, faith-based groups, and independent researchers um, that are strongly focused on human and land rights, and in particular those of indigenous people and local communities. Um, This is a group of uh, civil society organizations that uh, believe that Uh, The way to both adapt and mitigate climate change is by making our ecosystems healthy again and supporting agroecology and food sovereignty. So this is a group that closely monitors uh, all the technical nitty gritty details of the climate negotiations at the UNFCCC. So ITP has a unique role there in the sense that we don't follow all the day-to-day legalese and technical aspects of the negotiations, but we like to engage on these issues, particularly on on human rights and on ecosystems and obviously sustainable livestock systems. And take me through the premise of the report. How does this inform uh, government commitments uh, on climate change? What the Paris Agreement does and and what Copenhagen did uh, before that um, was that it, it that climate action basically, rather than coming from top down, comes from governments, right? Comes from national plans for climate mitigation. So in that sense, uh, things that are happening at the UNFCCC is about commitments of these governments to say, okay, what are we gonna do to get, to make make sure that we're not warming the planet more than 1.5 degrees? And I think um, the report that came out on October 8th by the IPCC, the special report that talks about the 1.5 degrees uh, that we must contain global warming to 1.5 degrees by 2050. Otherwise, uh, life on the on Earth as we know it is going to be very difficult for many people and including just producing food itself. So Clara, um, Clara's attempt and, and our, the initiative behind this report was to show that it's entirely feasible to be able to get to to limit warming to 1.5 degrees while respecting human rights and um, planetary boundaries and and you know uh, enriching our ecosystems again. So I, what's what's phenomenal about this report is that we look at the forestry and agriculture, the two sectors in climate talks that are land-based. And we talk about how we can contain warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius um, while we respect human rights and um, ecosystems. And uh, IATP was part of the, the agriculture section of this report where we in particular focused on livestock systems. Um, so let's jump into that. Why don't we just start with what uh, kind of an outline of what our section of the report contains? 
the agriculture section is is in three parts and the first part uh, focuses on how can agriculture contribute to limiting warming to 1.5 degrees but also to to highlight the fact that agriculture is going to be really hard hit um, as the planet warms so food production is going to become increasingly precarious particularly for folks who are dependent on rain-fed agriculture um, uh, Doreen Stavinsky, who's one of the authors, as she puts it very well, it's not going to be a linear thing where increasing yields and increasing production is going to be the answer because production itself and yields themselves are going to be completely um, variable once climate change, uh, you know, uh, starts to um, show, demonstrate impacts as we're seeing now. I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of news and a lot of new science that says that that we're already beginning to feel the impacts of of warming, which is already, which the IPCC report has said, you know, we, we've already at one degree, we're a one degree warmer world today than we were many years ago. And so- Right, and so the idea with that is that the, um, uh, irregularity of rainfall and increased extreme weather events makes um, planting crops very unpredictable. Right. right. And so, if you're uh, relying on rain for your for your irrigation, um, your ability to produce in a in a sort of a consistent pattern is going to be completely disrupted. Right. And then, therefore, to say that you know smallholders should become more efficient producers, uh, I think, is a bit of an oxymoron because. Uh, what we need to do is make sure that, that these small holders actually are able to adapt to climate change. That, that's the priority that we need to, to have when it comes to smaller producers. Um, yeah, so the idea that we can just uh, rely on increased productivity to deal with both um, mitigation and adaptation is something that we critique in this, uh, in this report. Uh, and what we're saying basically is... Um, we need to fundamentally shift towards agroecological systems that, you know, that recycle nutrients, that uh, create biodiversity, that create soil health. And there's a whole series of practices that will help um, agriculture actually become more resilient. And, 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 and actually it's quantified. Uh, what's phenomenal about this report is that we look at, um, both changing crop practices, changing livestock practices, and also just our food system in terms of reducing food waste and overconsumption. And what we find is that if we did all of these things, we would actually prevent eight um, gigatons of uh, emissions. And if you, just by comparison, in 2015, the world emitted, I mean, the livestock sector alone emitted seven gigatons. So. If, if agriculture can contribute this significantly to avoid this many emissions, and we show how that, that's actually possible while respecting human rights and protecting the environment. And what we're really talking about is resiliency, right? So yeah, building soil health, increasing biodiversity. Um, it's basically like diversifying the portfolio and you're mitigating risk. These are, these are practices that um, not only can be uh, neutral in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, but actually can sequester carbon, right? Or um, can actually like reverse emissions. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, we were very conservative about 
how attributing how much of the emissions from the agriculture sectors could actually be uh, negated through carbon sequestration because there's a lot of science out there about how impermanent sequestration is and the argument we make is so we largely underestimate the 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 savings or the negative emissions through sequestration just to be on the safe side. But what the case we make is, yes, these practices could also sequester carbon, but we should really be doing them because they improve soil health. These, these are the right things to do to make agriculture more resilient. Um, and we do include some carbon sequestration in there, but kind of error on the side of, of caution there. Um, and so one of the through narratives at IETP is that corporate concentration uh, and control of agriculture um, has driven a lot of this. Um, and the, the, there is a real connection between practices that are climate friendly and practices that improve human rights. Um, can you explain that connection? Yeah, and I mean, I think the livestock sector is a really good example of, of two very different systems or multiple systems, but there's one system that's totally dependent on economies of scale, of treating animals as commodities, of uh, bringing in external inputs like fertilizer and feed. Um, you know, so what, what that means is we're growing crops to feed animals that then feed people, which is a highly inefficient way of eating crops. Um, and also highly emitting because basically what you see is there's nitri nitrous oxide produced when you put fertilizer for feed crops and then nitrous oxide is reproduced when these animals are, are defecating in fields. So you get double the amount of nitrous oxide, which is much more potent of a greenhouse gas than uh, carbon dioxide. Um, so it's, it's terrible. Uh, it's a terrible system for the climate, obviously. It's a terrible system for uh, the environment for, because of all the land use change. But also it's a really tough system for farmers who are either trapped in a, in a um, contractual relationship with low, uh, low prices that are given to them because there's only a handful of corporations that control the prices uh, for pork production or, or beef production or poultry production. Um, well, in the case of beef, you, you might not have as many contract farmers, but you have very few uh, corporate buyers who will then determine the price. Uh, contract farming is much more prevalent in pork and poultry um, versus a system where you have an independent farmer who is uh, producing a lot less. And this is the key, right? Um, the, the system shift that we're asking for would result in a lot less production of meat and dairy. But that's mm -hmm. not necessarily a bad thing because um, Americans eat way too much meat and dairy. Europeans eat way too much meat and dairy. Um, there are a handful of countries that eat way too much meat and dairy and also produce way too much meat and dairy. And if we were to shift towards a system that integrates crops and livestock that, um, you know, is, uh, is, is respectful to the land use and the impacts that overgrazing has, I mean, if we really did things correctly, we would be producing a lot less, but we would also not be using antibiotics you would probably get a higher price for meat. You would, um, ha it would result in public health benefits. The bottom line is it would be better for farmers and it would certainly be uh, better for workers um, if you didn't have these mass producing factories that are you know, relying on really cheap labor 
long mm -hmm. hours, etc. It's kind of impossible for this all to happen all at once, right? So like, what is the path forward that we start building momentum um, towards getting towards some of the goals um, that are in the Clara report and the IPCC report? Well, I think it's really, uh, I, I want to take a minute to talk about the IPCC report. Um, I think the IPCC report is really a wake-up call yet again, but this time, time is really running out, right? I mean, basically what they're saying is that we need to reduce nearly half of our current emissions by 2030. So it says 45% of the emissions by 2030 compared to 2010 levels. And we need to be at zero by 2050. So in the next 10 years, basically, this is a this is the question of our of our lifetime, and it's a question uh, of 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 the quality of life that we want for our future generations, our kids. And um, so this shift actually needs to take place in the next 10 years. And how do we make that happen? I I mean. I believe that this issue has to be key on the on the ballot. I think this has to be an electoral issue. And I, and I think just impacts or events like Hurricane Florence or, you know, um, stronger hurricanes uh, and tornadoes and droughts that are now starting to happen, which we're now understanding is actually the result of climate change. Um, is going to create a sense of urgency. And the pathway forward is really to be able to get governments to start making these changes and to say, okay, we'll stop. We're going to stop subsidizing industrial agriculture. We're going to actually have to create incentives to move towards this kind of system of production. And um, um, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit because I think it's really interesting. Um, the you know, um, when we talk about trade, for example, you know, it's, it's easy to say that, you know, these cheap products from China that are made by, uh, you know, sweatshop labor end up on our shelves because there are laws in the U.S. and the EU that allow them to be there, right? Uh, but the same is actually true for um, industrial livestock, right? It's, it didn't happen um, just because of the free market, we actually incentivized a lot of this production, right? And we could be incentivizing other types of production, right? So how does the incentive system work now? Um, well, the industrial livestock system is subsidized through feed, actually. It's the indirect, uh, you know, you uh, pay farmers below the cost of production on uh, feed crops like soy and corn and and, uh, you know, the price of feed is what determines really how expensive uh, it's going to be to produce livestock and uh, especially the mass production of livestock. So as long as um, and then you have subsidies on top that then allow these farmers to stay afloat. And, and IATP has been saying this for years, you know, start paying farmers the cost of production and eliminate the subsidies. And that's has not happened. And um, so when, when crop prices were high, we didn't need them. But now that the crop prices are low again, we start to see a huge subsidy bill. And, um, and I think what we really need to understand is, uh, at least in the United States, you also have other kinds of funding that goes into, um, you know, the cleanup of manure lagoons and things like that which actually incentivizes having more of these large scale facilities than actually eliminating them altogether. And, and that's the direction that we need to be heading in. And so the, the result is meat 
and dairy is pretty drastically underpriced relative to the sort of entire social cost, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we're not even counting the public health costs, right, of antibiotic resistance and the pathogenic and zoonotic diseases that that come through um, all these animals. Um, so there's there's definitely public health costs. There are deaths related to antibiotic resistance and illnesses. I mean, just last week we had a recall of of seven billion pounds. Is it seven billion or seven million? I think it was seven million pounds of JBS beef because it was um, uh, it had salmonella in it and you know antibiotic resistant salmonella. And so it's you're seeing these manifestations, and that's really costly, right? And of course, and it ends up in the supermarkets, so people get sick, and then uh, governments have to take all this time to recall all of these things. Uh, they're all they're, these are costs associated with all of this stuff. And then, of course, all the in, the the land and water pollution related to all the all the the waste that these manure lagoons uh, deposit, or the over application of manure um, from from pork farms. And you've seen that play out with uh, these manure lagoon bleaches um, breaches in uh, North Carolina, for instance. I mean, em enormous damage all across the state. So we're not even counting those costs into that calculus of how cheap our meat is. <laughs> right. And so what, what, what recommendations does the Clara report have for getting the ball rolling? Um, I think one of the really positive messages of uh, the IPCC report is that it's entirely possible for us to keep warming to 1.5 degrees. And I think that's the same thing that we're saying in the Clara report. This is actually possible. We can do the right thing in a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. The hard part, but the key to that is political will. And essentially, if there's political will, this can happen in 10 years. If there's no political will, nothing's going to change. And so our energies, I think, as citizens, as those of us working for this change, really need, needs to be now a focus that this become a central issue of our time and that we make, the ne we make our governments make the necessary changes to, to make this happen. And it's entirely possible to make this happen. All right. So, Shafali, to wrap up the podcast, why, why is it important for people to pay attention to the Clara report, um, and how does this report fit into kind of the broader context of ongoing climate talks at the UN? And I think what it really does is it it challenges the policymakers that are involved in the climate debates, who have been looking at all these complicated models and geoengineering and all these other kind of. Uh, crazy technological schemes to mess with the Earth's atmosphere to, um, you know, continue growing the way that we're growing, um, uh, exponential growth, but uh, finding a way to just get rid of these emissions. And I think what the report does is shows that it's possible to be able to, um, you know, ensure that people lead, uh, have dignified livelihoods and that we can um, actually turn this around, actually heal the environment that we're in and give our, our future generations a chance. And what's the next step, um, both for this report and the IPCC um, report in terms of like, what are people going to do with it? I think, I mean, these reports are always just taken by governments, right? As 
these are political signals and they're backed by scientific peer-reviewed studies there but mm -hmm. and i think the stuff that we're pushing for is going to be used amongst uh these groups from clara to inform the negotiators like look here's here's a way forward you can actually do this there's math to prove that this would actually um you know get rid of the gigatons of emissions that we want to get rid of so you don't have to accept these techno fixes from xyz country and you can continue to try to take the right steps within your country to move forward on these so i think it's 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 a it's a resource for these groups um to do their lobbying inside and i think it's a good resource for us to continue highlighting the messages that we have about the role um that industrial livestock plays in creating climate change and that there's alternatives that are infinitely better. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more on what you've heard today, including to read the CLARA report, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. This podcast is available for download on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating. Thanks for listening.